Alex, why did you agree to this? Because <laughs> I'm a great friend and I wanted to help you out. Were you coerced into recording <laughs> a pod, your first podcast with me? Absolutely. 100%. Yes. All right. So I don't think people need too much context because nobody is listening to this anyway. Awesome. So we'll just start in the middle of things in media res. For almost as long as I've known you, you've woken up pretty early. When did that start and why do you do it? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I used to be definitely more of a night owl. So this changed in college uh, because of my roommate, Julian. He, uh, he has this crazy story. So he went to a, uh, a monastery during his maybe sophomore year summer. And they had to get up at like 3 a.m. And they had to peel almonds and do some crazy, crazy stuff. But one of the things he took back was uh, getting up early because he loved that part. And uh, like this podcast, I was sort of initially coerced into sort of waking up early with him. So I, uh, you know, reluctantly agreed to start at 7 a.m. And, and go down to 6 a.m. Because uh, I remember freshman year, I wasn't even able to go to my, uh, my 10 a.m. math class because I was just too tired. I couldn't do it. So uh, he kind of helped me. I started going, uh, waking up at 6 a.m. We would have our little coffee in the morning together, start the morning with a little chat and uh, fell in love with it. So I've uh, never stepped, never, so never stopped doing it since. It's easy to do that for a week or two, like I have, trying to keep up with you. But what do you think has been, or what do you think has helped you just keep up with it over so many years? I think initially it was definitely just having a partner in it who was more motivated than I was to make it happen. So if I wasn't awake, he would knock on my door and basically force me to wake up. Uh, so that kind of created the habit. But once I started seeing the benefits of it, I kind of just fell in love with waking up at 6 a.m. There's just way more productivity in the morning. You know, I feel way more energized and motivated to go to the gym. So uh, I just kind of like I've integrated into my life. It's become just kind of part of who I am now. And I feel like all the things that I like doing in the morning, I would never do at night. And so uh, it's just kind of a forcing function to keep it going. Great. Yeah. And that requires going to bed around what, 10? 10 p.m. usually. Yeah, nice. I can. Nice. And I'm trying to stick that schedule too. It's the McAllister way. Uh, for sure. It's definitely the number one thing you'll notice about House McAllister. <laughs> is the, uh, no one is up after 10. The, the schedule. The lights are dark. The schedule over here. I also remember one of my early impressions of you is that this guy has every Apple product. <laughs> I remember going to class and people would be, you know, screwing around on their computer, you know, watching YouTube videos, or whatever. You would do the same, except your videos were Apple product announcements and keynotes. And that's what you would be <laughs> distracted by during class. When did that start? And yeah, just tell us a little bit about your background relationship with Apple, the brand and the products. Man, I mean, that goes definitely all the way back to when I was a kid. So <clears throat> I think. The first Apple product I remember our family having was, uh, I don't even know what the model was anymore, but it was sort of uh, post the first iMac, pre the second iMac. It was this little monitor thing. It had a, a base area or something where you could put in CDs. And uh, I would play video games with my dad where he would control the mouse and I would control the WASD keys. Um, but I don't know. I just kind of was initially exposed through that. But the first time that I really like fell in love with Apple was uh, I had my first MacBook when I was living in China 
And I remember one day I opened the computer, I opened Safari, <laughs> and the uh, the default homepage was Apple.com. And I just saw this little or this big picture on it, and it said, announcing the iPhone. I had no idea what that was, but it looked kind of cool and funky, and I was just like into tech generally already. So I clicked on it, and it was the Steve Jobs keynote unveiling the iPhone. And I remember watching it completely end-to-end, like the full hour and whatever it was. And I was just completely obsessed immediately after that. I remember... And just for context, how old were you at this time? uh, Let's see, it was 2007, so I guess I was 10 years old. Wow. (laughs) That's that's kind of crazy. (laughs) I remember becoming so obsessed that when we went out to family dinners... Because I think a lot of other people in tech have a similar story as this, but they were, you know, going into college. Yeah. They were in the early 20s when, when this happened. So I just, I think the... The odd thing about this is you were 10. It definitely was early. Yes. I, uh, and I guess that explains why I was doing some weird stuff. So, uh, what I was saying there is, you know, we would go out to dinners and I would pretend to be holding the iPhone and using it, swiping between the apps. Uh, I would even just hold it horizontally and pretend to be watching a movie. And I remember I actually pretended to watch the movie in my head and like actually replayed it. Uh, to show them how obsessed I was, that I really wanted this thing. And if they were going to make me happy, it was going to be by getting me one of these. Um, and uh, So you're at this time playing around with someone else's original? No, no, no. Literally, it was, it was an air phone. Like, there was, oh, nothing, there was nothing there. <laughs> it was imaginary. Pretending like you had an iPhone. I got you. Yes, I was completely I pretending. The first time I actually got to see an iPhone was we took a trip to New York. And, you know, we, we went into the Apple store by my request and uh, play with it for as long as I possibly could. And then we went out to a lunch and my dad said, I know you want this. And he loved to do these little bets and games with me. So he said, if you can guess the number I'm thinking of between one and four, I will give you an iPhone today. (laughs) Pretty good odds. He wrote it down on a piece of paper too. So he wasn't lying. And I got it wrong three times in a row and I will never (laughs) live that down. so I did not get my iPhone that day, but, uh, the second thing that he was, uh, the, the second bet that he made with me was my school was basically like Harry Potter. We had houses. Uh, and he said, if I ran for house captain, then he would give me an iPhone. <clears throat> and uh, I was, you know, extremely shy. So this was kind of a huge undertaking, but I really wanted that iPhone. So I, I ran, I got, uh, vice uh, vice chair, vice captain or whatever. And he gave it to me. So that kind of started my love for Apple. I think it's a, there's a parenting lesson in there too, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think my parents are similar in that they would be frugal about a lot of things, but if it was a piece of technology or, you know, some electronics thing that I wanted, they found some way of getting me it. Um, Yeah. Because I think they too saw the benefit of what happens when you put new technology in the hands of kids. Yeah, and if you can incentivize good behavior and uh, educational behavior, then not necessarily a bad thing. So other things we would do too is I would, my, my dad would give me math workbooks to do when I was that young or even younger. And uh, every time I finished a page or finished the whole book, I would potentially get something out of it. So, you know, incentivizing. And, and what was it you wanted to do with this original 2007 iPhone? You were a kid at the time. I don't think you had anyone to contact. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't business you needed to conduct. So what were you doing on this on this new iPhone that you got? 
I don't know. I was just so intrigued. I just, I wanted the new technology. I wanted to play around with it. I thought this was definitely going to be the future. Uh, you know, my parents had these terrible Nokia phones that were, you know, one of the original brick ones where there's literally the camera was impossible to see anything on. The only game they had on there was like Snake. Uh, and so to see this new device, it was just kind of like, holy shit, this thing is going to be really, really cool. So kind of just wanted it. And luckily, you know, the app store um, evolved from there. There was jailbreaking. I kind of just like got into the whole community around iOS and and kind of by playing with it became really into tech in general and coding eventually. Were there any early apps that you still remember to this day? Yeah, I think the first app I ever got was Super Monkey Ball. So it was like a $9.99 app where you just tilt your phone and you try to not fall off the edges. There were a couple of really cool flight simulators that were just extremely detailed and you just be able to, you know, fly. And again, it was like, oh my God, this gyroscope thing is so cool. So uh, got to fly some planes there. Uh, Tap Tap Revolution. I was a huge Guitar Hero fan. And so this was basically just the phone version of that. Uh, and uh, I remember I, I was always jailbreaking my devices because they, the iPhones didn't work in China for a long time. So it was the only way to even have them. But you could get a bunch of free apps for some of them like TapTap. Tap. You could just download a bunch, like all the songs you wanted and create your own custom ones. And so I remember playing that a lot and just you know, going to town with all the jailbreaking stuff. What do you mean it didn't work in China? Like you would, it wouldn't connect to the app store or? Yeah, you couldn't even use an iPhone in China. So you couldn't connect to any carriers. Mm -hmm. Everything was totally locked. Um, and so you had to unlock the phone illegally. And the only way to do that was to also jailbreak it. So you literally had to bring it to some guy in some, you know, tech warehouse type of thing. And he would <laughs> literally open the phone and do some things on the, the actual firmware or something back in the day. Uh, and then finally, like, I wanted to do that myself. I hated giving it to the other people. I wanted to feel like a hacker. And eventually a bunch of kind of self, um, <laughs> self, uh, self-running tools you could just download on, on your computer and kind of run it yourself. So I eventually started doing that. So I think most people our age or older, older would know what jailbreaking is. But in case there's anyone listening that's younger than us, what was jailbreaking? It was basically a way to sidestep all of Apple's restrictions. And so you could have a, a secondary app store is a good way to put it because you could just download plugins, apps, things that would make your phone do crazy things that Apple wouldn't let you do. So I remember if you, you know, swiped between the pages of apps, Today, it's just like, you know, a horizontal swipe, but you could make it have this crazy 3D transition where all of the apps like twirled around. You could change the color of things before you could actually do that in the, uh, you know, in the native iOS. So there was just a lot of cool stuff you could do. Yeah, I definitely remember those years fondly too. I was a little bit later to the game than you were. I didn't, my first iPhone was the iPhone 4, the one that had the antenna problem. Oh yeah. Antenna, uh, yeah. But I think my first iOS device was probably the iPod touch or something that I ended up jailbreaking as well. And I remember the biggest incentive for jailbreaking is basically you would be able to pirate apps. Yeah. And that was my parents were very skeptical <laughs> of giving their credit card information to Apple. <laughs> this was the, the, the time that it was like you, you, I got pushback from my parents that like, oh no, we don't want to put our credit card in a phone. That seemed very sketchy at the time. So I was like, okay, the only way I can get some of these paid apps is by illegally basically pirating them through jailbreaking. Uh, so that's, that was what I remembered about it. The golden era of jailbreaking and torrenting, just getting everything for free. 
was a good time. Were you part of any online forums or communities? No, I don't think so. I was mainly just a consumer of things, not really posting anywhere, or hanging out there. Okay. But fast forward a few years, you went from being a obsessed consumer of apps to being a creator, a maker of many apps. So tell us about the app that you're currently working on, Bookshelf. Yeah. So uh, Bookshelf is an app that helps you track the books you're reading and take notes on them, but also not just take notes, but actually review the notes so you actually remember what you read. Also helps you kind of track your reading habits. Uh, you know, lots of little features, book recommendations, um, you know, some new AI stuff in there. But, you know, basically the way that this started was I had just graduated college and I had a lot of time on my hands. So I was reading a lot of books and I would just devour the books, go from one to another. And I realized at some point that I didn't remember what I was reading. I couldn't really, uh, you know, articulate in a brief summary the book that I had just completed as I was starting a new one. So at the same time, I was also looking for just another project to learn Swift UI, which was a new language that just came out and just hone my design skills before my first design job. So it all kind of came together. I was like, okay, this seems like a problem that I want to solve. Goodreads sucks. Everybody hates it. So I'm just going to make something myself. And so I just kind of whipped something up one weekend, literally, you know, 48 hours. Let me just find a way to track a couple of books, write down a couple of notes on them, and that's it. Um, and within a couple of weeks, it, uh, it was featured on the app store. Uh, it was, I think it got second or third on product hunt. And I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is something I should continue to pursue. And so uh, it's been a winding journey since then. And it's not the first app that you've made. I don't know how many apps you've made before Bookshelf, but what was different about this particular project? Were there any new heights you wanted to reach, new milestones or anything like that? What felt different with this project? Honestly, at the beginning, it didn't really feel different. I think the main thing was just that my skill level was higher. So I had tried building apps before during college. And uh, I guess there was one that actually made it to the app store, which was Bring It, uh, which is basically just like Uber Eats, but on your food points at Duke. Um, and I had remade that a couple of times because obviously the first time I made it, it was absolute garbage. Uh, I tried to download all the data at once. Uh, it was super slow, crashed all the time. And... Uh, after that one, I, uh, I had tried doing a couple other ones that were super college-y. So there's one that was uh, basically trying to be a beer pong buddy. So instead of you putting down your ID at the beer pong table when you're at a frat party, you could just use this app to track your spot in line, get notifications, track the games that are going on. Really super, super fratty. Uh, and then another one that was a little bit more educational focused that was supposed to help you track your estimated BAC or blood alcohol content level. So you could track the, the drinks that you were having at whatever, you know, event you were at. And you could make sure that you were, uh, you know, not going overboard. You could sort of see how you felt the next day and uh, hopefully revamp your strategy for next time. But neither of those made it to the App Store. Um, just played around with those for a while, did some designs. But I think when I finally graduated and started working on Bookshelf, I, I had enough skills and it was a simple enough initial concept that I actually just finished it and published it instead of trying to perfect it before sending it out. Right. And it sounds to me like the common thread with all of these where there were problems that you experienced yourself. Yeah. Um, I'm sure day to day these days, you also experience a lot of problems. What, what does it take for you to turn like this frustration, this annoyance that you have 
into a product or project idea? I think the most important thing is honestly timing for me. So I, I really kind of latched on to this bookshelf project because it was at that perfect time of I had a lot of extra time on my hands to read. I was seeing a problem that was you know very, very prevalent in my life. And uh, I also wanted to build something at that time. I think since then, I've just spent most of my time continuing with the same project because it's you know still a problem for me and uh, other people are finding it useful. And so I've actually been a little bit blind to all the other problems that I could be solving. Um, so I, it's not a, not a great answer. I think I've just, just been kind of continuing on this one route for a while. And so, you know, hopefully the next couple, couple years, if not less, hopefully I will, uh, kind of complete my journey with this one and find something else to work on. Yeah. So if you have any app ideas, send them to Please Alex's do. way. <laughs> okay. And then transitioning a little bit. So nowadays you work on bookshelf on the side, but by day you're a product designer. You recently, this week actually, went to a product design conference, Figma Config. Tell us a little bit more about that, what that experience was like, and maybe, you know, what are the top takeaways that you have from the conference? Yeah, it was my, my first design conference, so it was a lot. Uh, there were a lot of attendees there. I think it was around 9,000 people, and you definitely felt that. It was, uh, you know, palpable energy getting in there, uh, you know, the first morning yesterday. And uh, it was really exciting. You know, you, you, you wait for your favorite tool where everybody's designing to, un, uh, you know, unveil their new features are going to kind of unlock the next stage of what design can be. So that was all really exciting. Um, but the rest of the day was a little bit chaotic because nobody could get into the rooms they wanted to get to. There were just way too many people, not enough overflow. Um, and so it, it just ended up being a little bit of a mess. Um, but, you know, ultimately it was, it was interesting. It was really cool to just, you know, see people in person, connect with other designers, something I, I don't typically do. I don't know that many. Um, but I think the, my takeaways from Figma Config were basically, you know, there's a bunch of cool new features coming out as we all expected. They're going to help unlock sort of a lower floor for designers and a higher ceiling for designers, meaning like you can do more things, I think, um, and I think what I was realizing about it today, though, is that we're, we're basically trying to bridge the gap even further between designers and developers. Um, and so a lot of the concepts they were talking about are that they introduced, for example, variables, which allows you to basically kind of, you know, have a design token system for your colors, spacing, um, various aspects of your designs, um, brings it a little bit closer to code. But it's basically just the smallest introduction to code within a design tool. So uh, it just felt, as somebody who, you know, develops and who understands code generally, uh, it just felt like, you know, designers are finally getting that, that baby lesson in what is a variable, what is a loop, what are these things that we can do, um, you know, which is really exciting to, to help people unlock better prototyping and think a little bit more like a, an engineer does. But at the same time, it's just, you know, there are, the the features are always going to be kind of capped when you compare it to actually um, coding something. So I I still really enjoy doing prototyping using actual fig, uh, using Swift UI um, because you, you you don't have any constraints at that point. So there's always going to be constraints using a design tool. I think this has kind of un unlocked some some new things um, 
but yeah. Right. So that that's actually one thing that's interesting about you is like you're a design minded or design first person who also understands code and codes as well for many of your projects. Why do you think it is so rare that there's programmers who are great at design or great designers that program? Do they just tap into different parts of the brain or um, just too much to try to learn at once? What, what have you seen has been kind of the common threads between people that are like you that understand and work at both? I think it, it's honestly a bit of an artificial barrier, I think, for, for at least getting into code. I think anyone can get into code. And I think that most or a lot of designers that I know, they went to a design school. They didn't really get that much exposure to code just through the curriculum. And so it just feels like a bit of a foreign concept. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not that they couldn't get into code or that the, it's too complicated or too much, but I think, you know, the barrier to wanting to start doing that is pretty high. And I don't know if, if a lot of designers really see the benefits for themselves to get into, you know, learning an entirely new language, an entirely new concept. Um, you know, it just feels so technical. On the flip side, I think it's... It feels to me like the barrier to becoming a really great designer is high because I think some of it is a bit ineffable. I think it's, you know, you can learn a bunch of the hard skills. You can get good at Figma. You can learn principles about color theory and whatnot. But, you know, I have no formal training in any of that stuff. I don't really understand a lot of those, you know, core concepts necessarily from a educational level. But at, at some level for creativity, you kind of got it or you don't hmm. um, at a certain level. I think a lot of those other things can help you learn and speak the same language as designers. But again, it's like if I'm an engineer, maybe I just don't care about certain of these things. Maybe there are just different types of problems that I'm interested in. And so getting into it is more of a personal barrier. Um, but I think too, like, yeah, again, it's, it's almost like I either don't care or maybe I don't, like I just don't have that feeling of this, feels like the right flow, this looks good or it doesn't look good. Since taste, as you say, is such an ineffable thing, how do you screen for that or when you or try to hire people, right? Or you're interviewing people? Yeah, well, luckily... What are the things that you ask to tease that out? Design, obviously, there's, there's a lot of visual components to it. And so the interview process for designers does have a lot of, uh, you know, visual components to back up. So, you know, I, I don't, not exactly sure on the coding side, but I'm sure maybe you have a portfolio of like, you know, GitHub projects, so you can actually look at some code, you do a coding interview. On the design side, you have a portfolio. And so you can look at other projects you've worked on, assets you've created. Um, it's, a, it's a really easy thing to be able to, to judge sort of the, the visual aspect because it's right there. You can see it in front of you. Mm -hmm. I think what we tend to try to screen more of during the interview process is more of that strategic product thinking piece. Um, and so we have, you know, various types of interviews for that. You can also try to judge that from the intentionality of how they did the designs that you see. Um, we have product thinking interviews where you kind of go through a hypothetical situation and you see how they tackle it. Um, so I think the, the visual part is actually the easier one to judge. It's really like the other, uh, the softer skill pieces where um, you want to really try to pick that up in the interviews. Does the work always speak for itself or are there ever cases where someone has a great portfolio? but you don't end up hiring them for whatever reason, these other 
you know, product thinking, strategic stuff that you're talking about. hundred percent. I mean, also looking at the visuals is only part of the story for sure, but it also might be even just a sub part of the story because they could have been collaborating with other people. They could be using an existing, you know, world-class design system. And so they weren't actually involved with the visuals necessarily. It was just sort of the fitting all the pieces together. And so you, you really need that other part of product thinking to understand how did they arrive at the solution and why is it better for the user? And if you really prepared well for your presentation, maybe you do great there, but then the product thinking exercise, when you have to think on your feet and you can't just have memorized a bunch of stuff, typically a lot of the, you know, the BS will come out if it's there. Sure. And I would assume you've worked with a lot of great product designers as well. What do you think sets them apart? The great ones from just the good or average product designers. That is a great question. I think the ones that are really good have that visual taste that I was talking about, but they're also really, really intentional, intentional about how they approach the problems. And so they're, they're not going to jump right into the solutions. They're, they're going to kind of zoom out and try to see, okay, at the very highest level, what problem are we trying to solve? And they get really good at teasing out the smaller pieces from there. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there are a couple staff or kind of higher designers on my team who are just really good at taking an ambiguous problem statement and breaking it apart into its component pieces and coming up with a story that brings it all together in a solution. Uh, that's definitely something I'm, I'm working on as a designer. I think that that storytelling aspect of, okay, here are some designs, but here's why it matters, um, yeah. kind of sets, sets the great ones apart. So we haven't said what you do yet as a job, as an occupation. <laughs> so day-to-day -day you work at a self-driving car company, Cruise. Maybe the way to tee up that conversation is, what makes self-driving cars so difficult? Why is it still an unsolved problem? What do people not appreciate about the difficulty of this as a design and engineering problem? I think it's just everything coming together, right? Because I think getting the, um, some of the individual pieces right, getting to 80% is really not that hard. We have a lot of the pieces, you know, generally classifying objects as an ML problem is, is pretty good. Um, you know, just a, a lot of the, you know, we have a lot of sensors on the car, we have a lot of data. And so, you know, you should be able to just kind of, you know, train a model that is, you know, going to be pretty good at most things, but it can't be pretty good when it's on the road and there's, you know, a, a car and lives involved. So even just on the safety side, it's, you have to have all these redundant systems. You have to work with legislation because you're doing something that hasn't been done before. So if you want to not have somebody sitting in the driver's seat, let alone take out the steering wheel, uh, there's a lot of laws that prohibit you from doing that. And so you have to, you know, take it from that level as well. You have to, uh, you know, test and make sure that all of the data that you're ingesting is not slowing down your system so you can make split second decisions faster than a human could. Um, you have to take into account all of these crazy edge cases where, you know, a homeless person is riding a bike on the wrong side of the road while people are coming from beta breakers dressed as these crazy objects that, a, you know, an ML model may have never seen before um, while there's all this other traffic going on. And so it's just, there's so many different problems um, and, and so many different edge cases that we just have to get through. We have to learn. Data is going to help us get there. A lot of simulation is going to help us get there. Um, but that's just on the driving side. Mm -hmm. On the other side, once you start putting consumers in the car, 
Now you have to start worrying about, okay, what was the driver doing before that the driver could no longer do? So when you're texting your Uber driver saying, hey, I'm on this side of the road, I'm wearing this. Um, so you know, this is how you can find me or, oh, I can't see you, which car are you in? Uh, you can't really do that with a robot. So how do you figure out that piece? How do you figure out the safety of getting in a car where the driver is not unlocking it for you? Um, what if you have questions? What if you need help? What if you, you know, have accessibility needs? There are all these things that now the driver is not there to do. So we need to solve through design. Um, but it also unlocks these, you know, really cool opportunities where we have, uh, new surfaces in the car. We have tablets that we can build our own operating systems on top of. And, you know, it can be as simple as just showing you the map, or we could have these really uh, interactive, integrated experiences that, uh, you know, have a voice assistant involved or, you know, wh whatever you can imagine. It's kind of, it becomes your cabin. So the possibilities are kind of endless there. Um, so there's just, I mean, there's just so many problems for, for everyone involved. Um, you know, we are, we're definitely building out like our customer support team at the moment because, you know, while the cars are still at that 80, 90, 95% stage, there's going to be a lot of maybe comfortability issues or we pull over uh, a block away from where you wanted to get dropped off. And that's not exactly what people are used to with Uber and Lyft. And so you need to kind of adjust your expectations. That's also part of the design is is kind of making sure you have the trust, but also setting up expectations that, hey, maybe we're not 100% perfect yet, or we're not going to be the exact same experience as what you're used to. So a lot of different problems to take a look at. Right. And to me, I think the impressive thing is self-driving cars kind of seems like something that is always perpetually five years away until boom, you know, right there. Like this year, I'm sitting in a self-driving car going from A to B. So it's like slowly, slowly, and then all at once. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I joined as an intern in like 2018 or something, and they were definitely already saying it's almost here. <clears throat> uh, but it's been really exciting the last, almost the, the last few weeks when I've been really seeing the potential of this, where I've been actually able to take a car to work and yeah. back and, you know, to a doctor's appointment or, or things where it's actually useful because it used to be only at night. It used to be only a few cars on the road. And now it's actually starting to feel like an initial service. San Francisco, too, is a city that kind of self-selects for early adopters. Um, they're very open to trying out new technology. What do you think will be the biggest hurdles for self-driving cars going mainstream? Maybe from a, just a consumer user experience perspective. People who are hesitant to get into a self-driving car. I'm sure that's a design challenge that you guys think a lot about. Yeah, 100%. I think it's both a design challenge and also just sort of a, a public perception challenge. So. Most people who are hesitant to get in the car, it's just because they don't think it's safe. Um, it's, you know, all these other little problems, I think they're going to contribute to why people don't come back. Um, and they're all things we're trying to optimize and, and learn and get better at. But it's really, I'm not going to get in because I don't, I don't trust you is kind of the, the number one reason why people are not, uh, you know, post the, the early adopters, why they're not going to join us. And so there's a lot of just like public facing messaging we can do. There's a lot of adding social proof. So you know, we really encourage people to be taking selfies, taking videos and posting it to social media, because I think the more exposed we are to this becoming the norm, the more the, you know, our moms and our grandmas are going to be like, okay, well, you know, if my, my son is writing in this and I'm seeing, you know, videos of this everywhere, I'm seeing this covered on the news. Um, and they're also getting some of the facts around how the safety statistics are, you know, safer than a human driver. I think over time, people are going to start being convinced. It's going to take definitely a concerted effort, but um, yeah, we'll have to start with those baby steps. 
Yeah, it's definitely going to be a combination of data and storytelling. Yeah. That gets you to the mainstream. Also at Cruise, you're known to be a prolific filer of patents. <laughs> um, how many patents have you filed? How did you get into it? And just tell us a little bit more about that piece of the job. Oh, man. I don't know how many patents I have anymore. I think I filed probably around 45. Maybe we're, we're getting close to 50 probably. I think I have maybe five granted so far. So that, that whole process uh, from actually filing it with the U.S. Patent Office to getting it granted usually takes two plus years. So we're, you know, finally those are starting to roll in. Um, I kind of got into it by accident. Uh, we just have this really good patent program at Cruise. You know, we have a, a whole structure set up, an incentive program. We have, you know, in-house lawyers who are there to help us kind of hone our ideas and, and help us file the applications. Um, but we just decided one day as a team, hey, uh, we should just, you know, we've been thinking about these blue sky ideas for what could transportation look like in 10 years. We should just see if we can, you know, protect some of these things or just uh, file a patent. So we met with one of the patent attorneys and it turns out that the process was pretty easy. Uh, you know, it's a pretty wide open field, you can imagine, for, for self-driving cars. You know, what does transportation look like in the future? Um, and uh, we're, we're filing a lot of patents that are around exactly that. So looking 10 years into the future, you can assume things about technology that are not necessarily true today. And so there's you know, different types of patents or different stages of patents. We're not necessarily patenting that many things that are being implemented already. Um, or at least that's not what our group is looking at. Definitely a lot of people in the company are doing that. Uh, we we kind of just take it as a Let's let's take a break from our day to day jobs, looking at you know all the constraints that we have with engineering and and uh, the time and whatnot, and let's just go super blue sky and think about right. what if this could happen and what if what these would be an example true? of that a super moonshot, non engineering constraint, not non regulatory constraint idea that you've thought of and filed a patent for that you can speak to. Yeah, so I mean you can just uh, I'll just keep it vague, but like you can just imagine that in the future you're going to have maybe a personally owned autonomous vehicle. Uh, what if you wanted to ride with, uh, you know, a, what if you wanted to kind of go on a long road trip with another friend who had their personal uh, autonomous vehicle? And so there's multiple different, uh, you know, parts that you could imagine the cars linking up together so that you're kind of in a part of a caravan. Um, the car calculating exactly when it needs to get uh, a charge. And so maybe it's doing that while you're asleep because now it can take you long distances. Um and just like the, the, the ways for the car to interact with the other car and extended sensors and send the data back and forth. Um, yeah, there's, there's just, there's so many things. I can't get into too many details of, of most of the patents I've gotten into yet, but, uh, yeah, there, you could just imagine, uh, a future where all these things are communi communicating to each other. They're gathering a ton of data. What can you do with all of that? How can you optimize? The driving, how can you help cities? How can you help the customers? Uh, it's kind of a, a crazy wide open space. Yeah. And just as an aside from me, I think when you first told me about all this IP work that you were doing at Cruise, I was, of course, very impressed. But once I learned about uh, kind of how they've structured it, I wasn't at all surprised because if there's any type of gamified competition, I know you're going to try to maximize that. <laughs> and so it sounds like that's what they did. They turned it into a game where you could win. And of course, knowing you, you figured out how to maximize that. 
hundred percent. It's super fun. And every patent that you file, you may or may not get a reward that is monetary. So definitely it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt uh, the motivation there. If you want to motivate Alex to do something, just turn it into a competition <laughs> and he will, he will do it. Yes. Earlier today, you told me that if you were to write a book, you would write about growing up internationally in a bunch of different places with different cultures. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, how did you, how did you grow up? Where, where did you live? Yeah. So my, uh, you know, this is the spiel that I have to give to everybody that I meet, which is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not from any single place. My dad is Dutch. My mom's American. I was born in Paris, France, and, uh, we moved around a lot as a kid. So I, uh, I was born in Paris. We moved to Beijing for a year. Then we headed to Dubai for a year, then uh, back to Paris for three years, then to Shanghai for six years, back kind of in the outskirts around Paris for another two, Dallas for two years, my, my last two years of high school. Uh, and then now my family lives in the Netherlands. And, uh, you know, I, I went to college on the East Coast and now I'm here in California. So just a lot of bopping around, a lot of seeing new cultures, trying to learn some new languages and not doing super well at that. But uh, it's been a really fun upbringing. How do you think that has shaped you? Like what parts of your personality today comes from that? I feel like I don't notice a feeling of patriotism hmm. to any one place. So, you You're know, my a citizen of the world. Exactly. That, that's, that's exactly how I feel. I feel like everything just, the world feels very small. Um, and I don't feel like I'm, 100% American. I don't feel like I'm 100% European. I like parts of both, but I, I don't feel the need to just, you know, subscribe to whatever, you know, ideology or nationalism that I, you know, was born into. If you think about all the places that you've lived or cities that you've lived, what would be the best parts of each that you would want to, if you were to create your own imaginary city, what would you want to take from Paris? What would you want to take from Shanghai, from Texas? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Paris is, is the beauty, the culture, the food. Those, those things are, are amazing. I mean, just walking through the streets, you can always feel inspired uh, whenever the weather is not terrible, which is actually quite, quite a lot of the time. So I would take maybe the, the weather from another one of the places, either California or not Texas all the time, but at least it's generally sunny and warm. Um, the... What I, what I liked about Shanghai was just, it just felt so big and so busy. It felt like th this was like an infinite world where you could do anything. The energy. The energy was there, sort of in a similar way to New York, but also, and maybe also similar to, similarly to New York, there was all these sort of interesting shadow parts almost of the city where, you know, you get your bootleg DVDs from the back of a uh, of a bookstore where they kind of like open the bookshelf, you go in the back so the police don't find it. Um, and, you know, I would get my phone jailbroken at one of these electronics places where, of course, you know, you're not supposed to do this. They would also crack your PS3 so you could play all their fake games and whatnot. Uh, you know, there was just all this crazy energy. You could do anything. You could find anything. Uh, and, you know, for cheap, too. I, I remember the, the love of the haggle definitely came from going to Chinese markets and, and talking to people and attempting to speak a little bit of Chinese so they'd you know, give me a, a cheaper price because they just loved it when anybody foreign would attempt to speak their language, which is also the opposite of what happens in France. Uh, so I wouldn't, wouldn't want to keep that part there. Uh, you know, not the nicest people to foreigners. 
What about Mexico City? You spent quite a bit of time there in the past couple of years. What is your impression of it? What do you like about it? Yeah. Oh, Mexico City is amazing. I think uh, it is something I discovered very late in life. Uh, I, I'm surprised I hadn't visited before, but it, it really feels like another really, really lively city. The people there are all amazing. I met my girlfriend there. Uh, and I think I've been also lucky because uh, my girlfriend has given me sort of a very privileged and local look yeah. at the city. Uh, you know, she knows a lot of people. She knows all the right places to go to. And so I feel like I've I've definitely seen the some amazing parts of the city. And that that would be like the incredible food, uh, you know, the incredible nightlife. Um, there's just so much culture there. And, and not only just in the city, but you can quickly get into the mountains. You can quickly head to a beach. There's just so many different parts of Mexico that are, you know, highly accessible, super fun. Um, you know, and I, I think definitely not to be understated is the people. Every time I go out there, I meet new people and I, you know, befriend them. Whereas most other places I go to, it feels very siloed and, you know, you have to make an effort to really try to talk to somebody new. I don't even, I mean, it's definitely not something that I do generally, but, uh, it feels more closed in other places. There, they're very, very open people. Okay, we're in the final stretch now. I have some pre-prepared questions that I'll ask you. I don't know how much you've gotten a chance to think about these, but feel free to pass if you don't have to answer <laughs> as well. Let's spend like maybe five minutes or so jamming on what this podcast should be about. <laughs> so I kind of have a little bit of a rough draft of a vision for what I should do with it, what kind of a platform it should be, maybe a little bit of interviewing, a little bit of just talking about my own stuff. Um, but what do you think? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm well, surprised your, your moderation or interviewing skills have, have proven quite strong so far in this first episode. So, I mean, I, I think uh, you can at least have one version of this where you're just, you know, chatting with your friends, getting to learn a little bit more about them and uh, uh, just kind of, yeah, having a good chat. I think people would be interested in that. I think you also have a lot to say. You have a lot of your opinions. Uh, you have a lot of quotes, a lot of things that I'm sure are saved in your notion or your bear that people would be interested in learning a little bit about. You know, you, you read a lot of books, you have a lot of different things you uh, consume. So this could be a forum for you to share some of what you're consuming. Yeah, I think one of the, I think the primary reason why I wanted to start this is I think most of the time in our lives, we're just consuming things, right? Like I read a lot. I listen to a bunch of podcasts. Um, I watch stuff on YouTube and, and elsewhere. And I just feel like it would benefit me to turn some of that attention on consumption into production, right? So if I'm listening to a bunch of podcasts, hey, maybe I can make a podcast. Um, I think it's the same thing that happened to you, right? You used a bunch of apps. You tried a bunch of them and, and you love them. And then you're like, one day, hey, could I create an app myself? So I think this shifting from consumption to default production is one of the things that is top of mind for me this year. And so because podcast is such a big part of my life, you know, naturally I decided, okay, why not start one? And I think I've always been a chronicler of things too. I always want to document stuff, whether that's journaling or taking photos or yeah, like I feel like there's just a bunch of conversations that I have here in San Francisco with friends, with people I you know, meet once or, or frequently that I just think to myself, damn, I wish that was recorded so I could go back to it later, maybe, you know, a month from now, but maybe five, 10 years from now, right? As a interesting snapshot in time. So that's kind of what I had in mind for like why this podcast exists. 
but I also know that there are a sea of different podcasts out there. And so it's really easy to get lost in it. If you just say, Hey, I'm another tech interview podcast without a particularly strong or unique angle. What are, what are some of the podcasts that you enjoy listen, listening to? Uh, definitely my first million. That's definitely been the one I've been most hooked on. Uh, yeah, I used to listen to news and, and podcasts. For, for my first million, it's not so much the content, right? It's more so the, the chemistry you told me between the co-hosts. Yeah, hundred percent. I think they, they talk about the things that are going on. They talk about really interesting ideas, but it's mostly just them shooting the shit and they have, you know, great personalities that you can, you know, really vibe to and listen to. And it doesn't feel like I'm, you know, ingesting educational content like I do in a lot of other things. Um, so it's a nice break from that, but at the same time, you get a little bit of a dose of, you know, I, I am learning something here. Yeah. I mean, related to that, like, I think it's a noisy world out there, right? Or just drinking from a fire hose of information. Who or what do you choose to pay attention to deliberately? Put another way, like what gets, what sources get right access to your brain? <laughs> I mean, you know, I used to listen to a lot of different news podcasts, you know, it'd obviously be the, the daily, um, you know, wall street journal news as well. And it just became so, I don't know, you know, you're just, you're always trying to keep up with the, you know, latest things that are going on. It's always kind of negative. And so I feel like recently I've kind of jumped off of just always consuming, always consuming, always consuming the news and just trying to uh, narrow my focus to other things. And so actually that that's another reason why I've been spending so much time on my app is just, I've, I've kind of converted a lot of my consumption time into the production time of, of coding and feeling focused and trying to solve an actual problem. And I so, can vouch for that every time I come home, <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, I'm working on my app. Yep. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the amount of things that I led into my brain, I've, I've hopefully been uh, you're shrinking the number there. I definitely do go on a binge on Netflix every now and then. And, you know, I'll, I'll watch stuff with my girlfriend and my first million walking on the way to the gym. Uh, Huberman has definitely started inching in there a little bit as well. Um, but other than that, I try to keep it down. Like I, I don't really read any of my newsletters anymore. I don't tend to go onto blog posts as much. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my beliefs is that solitude is underrated. We all have our AirPods in all day, every day. And sometimes it's nice to just have silence and hear what your brain is telling you, the thoughts that you have inside your head. I'm definitely trying to do more of that. And so I'm finding that as I get older, fewer and fewer things have right access to my brain. Mm. Let's try this. I want you to play the role of a brutally honest friend. What's one piece of feedback you would have for me? You've known me for eight <laughs> years. I don't want you to hold back or sugarcoat your criticism. What can I do better? I've been waiting for this one for eight years. The only thing I can like sort of think about is, no, I don't, it's not even a fully formed thought, but it's like, you know, you, you have a big talk and I think you generally do have action. Like you do take action in, in, you know, different ways, but you definitely have a, a very large appetite for uh, you know, consuming content, sharing things, nuggets and advice with us that, uh, you know, maybe not always you're following yourself. Um, but do we have an example of that? Maybe as it relates to punctuality? Yeah, that, that was definitely the main one that came to mind from a, a couple of years ago. You know, you would be preaching 
in our group chats. You would have quotes that you would spout. Like it would just be a constant preaching from you that to be on time is late. To be early is on time. And there was a third part of that I can't remember. I think you even had like gifts that you would send to our group chats and you would always be late. So uh, there is, you know, maybe some of that. I feel like I'm getting better at that. But yes, I will take the feedback that uh, I should follow a lot of the things that I preach. Last question. What's one thing everyone listening should do? Maybe at least just at least once that they should try after listening to this podcast. What would be your top recommendation? Wake up early and do something productive in the morning. And on that note, we'll end it here. Thanks so much, Alex. Great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here.